0: Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's start reading uh, in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15, although the first 11 verses uh, represent ground that we have covered, but we will read all the way from 1 through verse 19 before pausing. So let's just read the passage and try to consider what it is that we're reading here. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried... And that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, and by the twelve. And that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we've testified of God that He has raised up Christ whom He did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise then Christ is not risen and if Christ is not risen your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ we are of all men The most pitiable. And that's as far as we will go this morning. So, Paul is building off of his great clarity of the gospel last week. Last week it was, this is the gospel. It is not a complicated message. Jesus Christ was born into the world. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried He rose again on the third day. This is the gospel. This is the gospel which I preached to you. This is the gospel that you believed. This is the gospel in which you have all of your hope. That was last week. Paul clarifies in verse 9, I am the least of all the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, because of the gospel that I've received, I have been made what I am, uh, this apostle of this message. And by God's grace, I worked very hard. And therefore, whether it was I who worked, or they who worked, we all preach the same message, and this is what we believe. And now we get in verse 12 to the real crux of the matter. And the issue in Corinth seems to be that in this Greek city, there were many... People identifying as Christians who were hanging on to the Greek philosophies. And the Greek philosophies, the ancient Greek philosophies all the way back to the beginning is that the flesh in and of itself, the body in and of itself is bad. The body in and of itself is not good. It's irredeemable. And whatever, you know, nirvana, whatever existence happens after this life, It is a spiritual existence freed from the corruption of the body. And then you have, you know, a Christian message that bears some similarity to that. Because, in fact, there are certain common elements in every uh, religious system. And that is, we're not great people. We're not all good. We do bad things. The Christian message is also saying, no, the flesh is corrupted. But the Christian message is saying, the flesh will be redeemed. We will have a resurrection and new bodies. Well, it seems like there were those in Corinth who were embracing the idea that the flesh is corrupted and blending the ideas of a Christ Savior with an existence that would be with Jesus, but only spiritually, not physically. That there would be no bodily resurrection of the dead because everyone who's Greek knows The body in itself is a cage. It's bad. We want to be free of it eventually. And that is what Paul is taking to task. That idea that there won't be a bodily resurrection. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to make a preemptive point or else this will seem very humdrum, I think, to many of us because I don't think there is a great danger of those of us here this morning who identify as Christians, I don't think there is a great danger of us performing some kind of alteration to the gospel whereby we don't believe in a resurrection. I think those of us who are Christians here today, and that may be all of us, it may be the majority of us, certainly should be the majority of us, hopefully all of us believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and in our own resurrection. So, lest this become just a doctrinal re-emphasis of things that we already know, I think it would be good to step back and realize that this Paul's message here, and it'll become clear in the text, is not merely about your hope of eternal life. Now, it involves your hope of eternal life. But Paul's message here is not merely about your hope of eternal life. It's not even, I would say... Entirely about everyone's hope of eternal life. There is a cosmic struggle going on that Paul is going to delve into as we go through 1 Corinthians 15. A struggle beyond human beings. Whereby human flesh is certainly in the battlefield, but there is something else at play. To illustrate this, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. And we'll only read five verses, lest this become something I don't intend it to be. But five verses will suffice to set the framework for this morning's message, hopefully being about more than just, well, I believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, so I can drift off into those January 2nd restful moments. Some of you are going to have those tomorrow at work, the January 3rd restful moments. Those of you who are driving vehicles, be careful tomorrow. I Get rest today. Revelation chapter 12, just the first five verses. Read now what is obviously metaphorical, what's obvious allegory here, but read this. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. This woman is the representation of Israel, if you will. It's the representation of the fulfillment of the promise made to Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That is a Genesis chapter 3 Prophecy. That is a beginning of the book prophecy. The seed of the woman would crush the head of a serpent. That is an ancient prophecy. And we are being reminded of it in Romans 12 at the end of the book. We have, if you will, a magnificent bookend here reference to a prophecy that set all of this in motion. The seed of the woman Jesus would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. Well, here we see a woman clothed with the sun, the moon at her feet, a garland of twelve stars. and Twelve should make us think of the number of Israel, the tribes, the people of Israel. It says, then being with child, and there should be no doubt what child this is, This is the child. This is the fulfillment of the Genesis 3 prophecy. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. This is not Mary. This is a woman representative, allegorically, of the seed of the woman which would trek through the line of Israel. This woman becomes a representation of Israel because we find out In Genesis and the promises made to Abraham that God has selected Abraham and his son Isaac through whom would come Jacob, Israel. God has selected them to be the line that would bear the Messiah in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is the woman, Israel, fulfilling its destiny. The child is being ready to be born. Verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. The dragon will be clearly identified in the book of Revelation as Satan. It bears inescapable resemblance to the beast of Daniel in Daniel 7. The ten horns represent ten kingdoms. In Daniel 7 you can see how these ten kingdoms from them emerge a triumvirate of three, of whom comes the Antichrist, that ruler of the world at the end. Well, this is the dragon in heaven. The dragon represented as it will be ultimately. And it says in verse 4, "...his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth." a picture of Satan's rebellion against God and the angels that followed Satan in this rebellion. And notice, though the signs and the visions appear in heaven, the battlefield takes place on the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. There is no room for misinterpretation of the devil's desires. He understands the enmity prophesied in Genesis chapter 3 between the seed of the woman and himself. He understands the threat that the child represents. He stands ready before the child is born to devour her. In fact, we might see throughout scriptures and world history the attempts of the dragon to slay the child before his birth. In this you might see you might see the threat of Egypt to Israel you might see the threat of Moab to Israel. You might see the threat of the Canaanites to Israel. You might see the threat of the Philistines to Israel. You might see the Assyrians trying to destroy Israel, the Babylonians trying to destroy Israel. You might see the Greeks trying to destroy Israel, leading to the great Maccabean revolt. You might see the Romans making Herod king of the Jews and the Edomite who, as Christ is born, tries to destroy all of the infant children of whom the city, the wise men said, this child would be born from. But despite all of the attempts, the child is born. Verse 5, She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Again, this is a heavenly conflict taking place on our playing field, this earth. And it says, and her child was caught up to God and His throne. He was to rule all nations, but at that moment, chronologically, at His first coming, He did not rule all nations. He was caught up to God and His throne. Now that is why Marty read from Acts chapter 1 this morning. Jesus, in His bodily resurrection was caught up to God. That word caught up is the word harpazo. It is the word that we derive the Latin term that becomes the English term rapture. It's the same word in First Thessalonians 4, by the way, where it says that at Christ's return to the earth, those who are alive and who are His will be caught up with Him. It is a reference for a bodily ascension to heaven. A bodily rise. Now, you could read the rest of Revelation chapter 12, and indeed, you probably should. You should read the fullness of God's word. But what I'm trying to get at this morning is in 1 Corinthians 15, when we are talking about the resurrection of Jesus, we are not merely talking about whether or not you're going to open your eyes after you die, we are talking about a cosmic struggle. What's described to us in Revelation 12 as a war. Verse 7 says, And war broke out in heaven. A battle. Now, back to 1 Corinthians 15, if you will. Look at verse 12. We're going to see Paul address... Three times the consequence of Jesus not being bodily resurrected. Understand his approach here. Verse 12, let's read... Just verses 12, 13, and 14. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Why? Because the dragon has won. Christ died. There is no mistake about that. If He did not rise from the dead, then Satan, who stood ready to consume the child of the woman, is victorious. Christ's resurrection is the grounds for Satan's defeat. If Christ, verse 14, is not risen, our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. You worship a dead Messiah. A dead Christ. If Christ is dead, then Satan has one dominion over the world. Verse 15... Second consequence, if Christ is not raised, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he has raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, second consequence, if Jesus has not been bodily resurrected, if he hasn't been bodily resurrected, we are preaching a false gospel. And you're believing a false gospel and there is no forgiveness of sins in a false gospel. In other words, if Christ is not raised, you think you're forgiven of your sins and you're not. You are still damned. Second consequence. The third consequence. Verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Literally in the Greek, been destroyed. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. What a statement that is. If Christ be not raised, then we are of all men to be pitied the most. More than slaves. More than those who are abused domestically. If Christ be not raised, says Paul, we are of all men most pitiable. The falsehood that living a Christian life is just a good way to live anyway, if Christ be not raised, needs to be acknowledged. Maybe maybe and this is not, an, this is not accusatory, but it's meant to, to do a little evaluation. It's meant to think. you should think about this, because Paul has just said something outrageous. I mean, you're a Christian. Paul's a Christian. He's just said, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then we are of all to be pitied. So I think that's worth evaluating. So I think this is worth thinking on for a second. There is a temptation in even an environment like ours. And I know people talk about the persecution of Christians in America. But if we're honest, the persecutions of Christians in America right now today are relatively light. Not non-existent, but relatively light. And it would be possible, it's been possible, it remains possible for Christians today to perhaps carve out a life for themselves that is morally aligned with God's Word, but not all that sacrificial. Again, I'm not saying any of you have done this. I'm saying this is worth evaluating. If you have found a way to carve out for yourselves a life of faith in Jesus that is morally in line with God's word, but not sacrificial, then you might look at Paul in this verse and say, I don't know what he's talking about. That doesn't make any sense to me. Now for Paul this is the most plain thing in the world. I mean this is Paul who is being pursued by the Jews to try to be killed. This is Paul who has stones thrown at him to kill him. This is Paul who is beaten publicly. This is Paul who is imprisoned. This is Paul, who is shipwrecked at sea on missionary journeys, who's forsaken the comforts of house and home. This is this is Paul. So it would be easy to look at him and say, right? If Jesus isn't alive, then Paul himself is most to be pitied. But I think the challenge then is for you to look at your own life and ask yourself is there any semblance, and again, not accusatory, I want you to think, is there any semblance of my life that is sacrificial to the extent that if Jesus did not rise and this is all false and none of this is true, I would have cause to look at my life and say, what a pitiable, what a terrible existence that I've sacrificed and that I've spent and that I've labored all for a lie? I think that's worth considering. For Paul, it's just a statement of fact. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say you should feel guilty if you're happy or you should feel guilty if you have a family or a home. That's not the point. But Christians are called to live as living sacrifices to God. If there is no daily sacrifice, if there is no living sacrifice that is costly enough to you to make you think, let me tell you something, if this is all wrong... (laughs) then you have the wrong idea. But I hear people sometimes say, I'm not talking about people here, I hear people sometimes say, you know, even if this weren't true, being a Christian is still a valuable thing because, you know, you'll live morally and, you know, you won't have, you know, 15 kids by 15 women or whatever it is. You know, you hear people say those kinds of things. You won't be a drunk, you know, if you just try to live as a Christian. But, Christianity is not about your moral living. Again, this is a cosmic struggle taking place here. I thought of an analogy, and it might be poor, but I'll use it anyway. It might take a little explanation. Okay, so I brought up, I don't really do this, but I brought up two, two stage props this morning right here. You may not be able to see these very well. I asked for darker pieces. These are the darkest chess pieces I have in my house, apparently. The other ones are clear. These are frosted, so... For those of you that don't know much about chess, this is a pawn. And this is a queen. And chess is a game where this is the most powerful piece, the queen. And this is the least powerful piece piece in terms of movement, it requires the most numbers on the board to accomplish anything. This piece can only move one square at a time and only forward, except in unique circumstances. This piece can move as many squares as it wants to in whatever direction. The goal of a pawn in chess, you might say... The ultimate end game is if it reaches the other side of the board. Because again, it can only move one square forward at a time. If it reaches the other side of the board, the final square on your opponent's side, it can become whatever other piece that you want it to be. And most people choose this one. You would in almost every scenario. There's a few that you wouldn't. But in almost every scenario, you would choose For the pawn to become a queen. And you can have two queens on the board. Three queens on the board. This is the most powerful piece. People. Live. Either. As if they were queens. Or as if they were pawns. Or as if they were one of the pieces in between. All of the pieces can move differently. All of them have different flexibilities. Some people know that this is pretty much what they are. I don't mean pawn in the sense of being manipulated by other people. I don't mean that in the derogatory sense. I mean, they seem to have very little options in life. They can only really move one direction. It seems like their life is on a track, their life is on a course, and this is all they can do. And I find that those people often envy these people. Now These would be the richest and the most powerful and the celebrities. The people who, when it is cold outside in the morning, can simply get in a private jet and fly to somewhere warm. <laughs> they don't need to consider the cost. They don't need to consider the consequence. They can simply get up and move as far as they want in whatever direction. But most of us are waking up tomorrow going one particular direction We might not be pawns. These might be the barely paid workers in the factories overseas. Or the people in the tribes of Africa. The poorest in Indonesia and Euro-Asia. Maybe that's who these are. So maybe we're not these, but we're not these either. And it seems that the goal for most people on the earth, is to have as much freedom as they can to move as freely as they can. And if I can't convince you that that's the goal, just look at the billions of dollars spent in advertising and what exactly they advertise. In other words, if you think about all the retirement commercials that show up when you're watching a golf round on TV, of so you never watch golf round, or if you think of if you think of the, all the mortgage lending commercials that show up when you watch the Super Bowl or whatever it is, these are all commercials aimed at telling you you can move as much as you want, as far as you want. If you think of all the commercials for all the for-profit, which nearly all of them seem to cost like they're for-profit, educational institutions, come to us, get your degree, and you can move as far as you want, as much as you want, as frequently as you want, in whatever direction you want to go. And this is pretty much life. And if you have freedom to move about the board, you are successful. And if you have no freedom, if you're pinned down, if you're a pawn that can only go forward and there is a piece in your way, you just hope someone else comes and knocks it down someday, or else that's where you will be when the game ends. No further. But it's all an illusion, because the real master of both the pawn and the queen alike, I think, is the game itself because the game ultimately ends and the pieces are wherever they are. And it's a relatively small board when you think about it. Chess is an 8 by 8 grid, 64 spaces. Maybe your options in life feel a little bit broader than that, maybe a little more narrow, but at the end of the day I think you'll agree at some point in the future, it's a small board. And this is how Satan wants it. Human beings, as finite pieces in a finite world, this queen can move as far as she wants as long as it's only eight spaces. But she can't move the ninth, she can't see beyond the eighth. She has no existence beyond the eighth. It might as well not even exist to her because her world is this little box. Human beings as finite pieces in a finite world where Satan can manipulate, and that's exactly what he does. I read it on New Year's Eve. I'll read it to you again here. You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. This queen is just as the others, all the other pawns. Because the game will end and she will stop and it's all over. This is Genesis 3.22. Man has become like us, knowing good and evil, lest he take of the tree of life and live forever. And then God walls him off from fellowship with the Almighty. He walls him off from the garden. He walls him off from a tree of life. And his world becomes some version of an eight by eight grid. Oceans, mountains, trees. It's all beautiful. Islands. It's very lovely. It can be a wonderful place. But it is coming to an end. And this is how it would be forever, except an infinite God stepped into the finite game. He stepped in as one of these pieces. I think this one represents it, a pawn. He steps into one of these pieces, an infinite God who knows what exists beyond the board, who exists beyond the board himself, steps into a finite And this is the child that is the seed of the woman. This is the threat to Satan's game. And Satan would eliminate this pawn, as I said, with Egypt, with Philistia, with the Assyrians, with the Babylonians, with the Persians, with the Greeks, with the Romans. He would eliminate this pawn, except, except Christ is born And we see this strange encounter. You can turn there, I'll read it to you. But the strange encounter in Matthew four, it's eerie. This is before Jesus's ministry. Immediately following his baptism, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Let's see if I can make the pawn move like a queen. Let's see if I can make Jesus, chase after his desires like every other man. He's hungry, he's fasted, he's spent 40 days in the wilderness. So let's see if we can tempt the pawn to move sideways. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, man is not supposed to follow his desires. But by he's supposed to follow the path of God, the word of God, the command of the Lord. That didn't work. Verse five. "Then the devil took him. And you see, just imagine that. This shows the way that the infinite God has stepped into finite man. Satan transports this being. Then the devil took him into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. If you are the Son of God, if you are the child that was to be born, then show the world. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, visions of all the peoples in all places, Satan's vast power. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I will give you the entire board if you will confine yourself to it. If you will confine yourself to the board, I'll give it all to you. Satan's goal is not merely to rule nations or worlds. His ally is death. Jesus says to Satan and of Satan, He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Then Jesus said to him away with you Satan for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold angels came and ministered to him. Satan would bargain with Jesus to confine him to the board, to get him to move according to his desires, to get him to move selfishly, and Jesus will not budge off the path that the Father has set him on. In John 5, this is Jesus' description of his life. Three verses from John 5. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. This will not move, but by the Father's command. That's what Jesus did that you and I can't, that you and I couldn't. If you and I could do that, we could have climbed up on a cross and given our life for the rest of the world. We are not righteous, but Jesus can move only at the direction of the Father. Verse 20 of John 5 says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. This is Jesus explaining why he moves the way that he moves. He is not merely trying to get his own desires. He is breaking the board. He is breaking the perimeter, the confines of death. He's giving the factory worker in China. Not the ability to be a queen. That's what Satan would do. Be jealous of the queens. Be jealous of the Americans. Be jealous of the richest. Be be jealous of the powerful who can move and do whatever they want. That's not Jesus' hope to the pawn. His hope to the pawn is believe in me. I will break the board and give you eternal life beyond all of this. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even, though, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. Jesus came to break the game. He did not merely do what He wanted to do. He did only as God commanded. And so we strive to follow Him. We do not live doing whatever we like. If this does not lead to eternal life, then we should be pitied more than all others. Verse 15, or sorry, verse 20 of chapter 15. I'll just read this to you this morning. Again, the first, what, seven, eight verses, 12 through 19. If Christ be not raised, if Christ be not raised, if Christ be not raised, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. And he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the first to rise from the dead. He becomes the way maker for everyone else who would die in this game. Everyone else who would fall in the confines of this board. He has had bodily existence beyond the board. And he becomes the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, that's Adam. That's Genesis 3.22. That's walled off from a tree of life. Walled off from fellowship of God. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection from the dead. And that is the value of the infinite stepping into the finite. For as in Adam all die... Even so, in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at His coming. Then comes the end, at His coming, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when He puts an end to all rule and all authority and all Power. It is not merely talking about earthly kings and kingdoms. It says, For he must reign till he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he has put all things under him. Him is accepted. In other words, God in Christ will rule forever and ever And no longer will we be constrained. But Christ has risen. That is good news for you and I. When you think of your faith, and when you think of the role that you are to play in this world, you should acknowledge, first of all, that you have one. You have a role. Jesus knew what that role was. He lived according to that role. It required great sacrifice. When you think of the choices that you make, you should think more than simply moral obligation. You should think of yourself as a follower of the one who has beaten the game. You should think of yourself as one with the responsibility then to live in those footsteps, to follow that path. And when you think of eternal life, you should think of more than just pie in the sky, hopeful thinking. Well, I'll die, but then I'll get to go to heaven and be with Jesus. That's not false doctrine. But it is more than that. There is an existence beyond this world that is greater than the existence in this world. It is so precious. It is so joyful. It is so valuable. It is so meaningful that rather than destroy the world because of its sin, God preserved the world and suffered through its sin in order to redeem you out of it to know that existence. There is something beyond the edges of the board. And if you are in Christ, you are free from the constraints of movement. Free eternally. You can do whatever He has called you to do. That's what it means. Christ, all things are possible. Whatever He has called you to do, nothing will stand in the way and block you from it. You will accomplish His purposes if you follow Him. It's better than working in a warehouse, it's better than fighting in an army. Christ is risen. Let's remember what that means. Let's close with a word of prayer as the men come forward to serve. Father, thank You for the work of Your Son Jesus who suffered so much, who sacrificed more than we can possibly understand, who experienced death for our sakes, and who by His resurrection has made an existence for us beyond this world possible that we will one day fully know, that now seems almost unimaginable. By faith we believe that our sins are forgiven. By faith we know that we're Your children. Thank You for letting us come together to celebrate this.